Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. And as we begin to work through chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, we will begin our study on arguably the most famous <laughs> chapters in the book of Exodus, if it is not in fact the Ten Commandments and what happens on Mount Sinai, uh, the Ten Plagues, right? The Ten Plagues. Now, before we get into the Ten Plagues, we do have to touch upon Moses and Aaron obeying God's commands, and of course, uh, the episode with Aaron's miraculous rod. So let us go to chapter 7 and begin with verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Incidentally, my friends, there. Moses is now 40 years older than when he first fled from Egypt, right? And of course, Aaron is the firstborn of Amron, and thus the older brother of Moses by three years. Okay, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. For every man cast down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Still. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Okay, first things first. How about that last verse? Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Brothers and sisters in Christ, take stock in this verse. When our heart is hardened, we will not be able to listen to God, because it is the heart that listens, huh? the pliable heart, the soft heart. But if it has become callous by virtue of sin, it is very difficult to hear God. So let us maybe not so quickly distance ourselves from Pharaoh. 
and what the Pharaoh is all about, huh? We need to be present to this reality. Okay, verse 10, the rod and the serpent. So not only a sign of Yahweh's power over nature, but what else here, my friends? A direct challenge to Pharaoh's authority. You see, the snake was an emblem of Egyptian power embodied in the Pharaoh, whose, whose royal headpiece featured a cobra representing the serpent goddess Wajet. Uh, it was St. Ephraim, the Syrian, who in his commentary on the book of Exodus spoke to this uh, these series of verses allegorically, how the staff of Moses is a sign of the cross. For it swallows up the evil of idols and divides the sea that drowns the enemy. You see, here we have in the allegory a typological instrument in how we might interpret the sign of the cross because the cross now is Christ's literally headpiece in which he swallows up the enemy. I think that is striking, if nothing else. What are we to make of these Egyptians? The Ignatius Catholic Study Bible highlights that these magicians were priestly sages, uh, priestly practitioners of various occultic arts. Uh, Incidentally, my friends, there take note of the word occult versus cult. You see, occult in its root speaks to magical power. Cult speaks more directly to worship, okay? Occult is something different from cult. Uh, certainly, cult is within the word occult, but today, in, in the context of Christianity, we might be more inclined to use the word cult, rightly so, because that just speaks to worship. Um, one can be in the right cult to the degree that we speak to cult as worship, but never the occult. Occult is the stuff of, of magic, and here we're not talking about some divine intervention. And point of fact, when you talk about the magicians back during the times of the Egyptians, it was their ability to replicate the initial plagues as a result of tapping into dark and demonic powers, which enabled them probably to manipulate nature by means of spells and and incantations. Alternatively, they also may be masters of illusion and trickery. Okay, so not to get lost in what the magician was, but it is to highlight the distinction between occult and cult, and, and in doing so, be mindful that when you talk about the magicians in the days of Egypt, certainly they could have been masters of illusion and trickery, but also they very well may could have been tapping into dark and demonic powers. And to verse 12, the swallowing up, Uh, This anticipates Yahweh's victory at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his army will be, in chapter 15, verse 12, swallowed up in the depths of the water. Okay, so there's a play on terms. Now, here we arrive in verse 14 to the ten plagues. And might we set this up a little bit into how to best interpret the ten plagues to then get into them individually? Uh, literarily, these plagues, these stories are grouped into three cycles of three plagues, with, of course, the tenth plague forming the climax to the series of plagues. Before the first plague in each cycle, 
the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible highlights that, what, Moses is issuing a warning to Pharaoh in the morning. Okay, so the first three plagues are set up with that phrase, in the morning. In our second set of three plagues, God instructs Moses to go into Pharaoh, okay? And what you have in common with the third cycle of plagues is that each cycle comes without any forewarning from either God or Moses. All right, so that is more the literary context to how we might see these plagues grouped. Now, second, historically, the plagues, my friends, have certain affinities with natural calamities known to afflict the Nile Valley. And so some commentators thus posit a chain of natural causes and effects for the first several plagues, perhaps amplified in their severity by divine intervention. Attempts such as this may offer a partial explanation of the phenomena, but in the end, my friends, the book of Exodus portrays the plagues as what? But as supernatural judgments of God, terrifying in their intensity and ultimately aimed at breaking Pharaoh's uh, stranglehold on Israel, right? You know, there are at least three unique aspects of the plagues which set them apart as miraculous events, at least within reason. First, their intensification, right? While frogs, insects, moraine, and darkness were known in Egypt, they were intensified far beyond any ordinary occurrences. And how about the prediction of them, right? The fact that Moses predicted the moment of the arrival and departure really sets them apart from purely natural occurrences, right? Doesn't that suggest something? And how about their orderliness? What do I mean by that? Well, there is a gradual severity in the nature of the plagues, concluding with, of course, the death of the firstborn son. So from intensification to prediction to ultimately orderliness, I think you have within reason something that sets these plagues apart. We, we can begin to see them as something that belongs to the supernatural. All right. If we're going to look at these plagues more topically, we have to not only look at them within their literary and historical context, but also theological context, right? Theologically, what do we see take place? But the plague's devastation upon the beauty and harmony of creation itself in Egypt, reducing the land to a state of chaos and disorder, reversing several of the, of the creative actions mentioned in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. I mean, consider uh, plague nine. The Lord made darkness prevail over light. How about the first plague, where God makes the waters foul and unsupportive of life? And God, in plagues seven and eight, destroying plants and trees and fruit. And in plagues 1, 2, and 5, bringing death to fish, frogs, and cattle. And even in plagues 7 and 10, taking scores of human lives. So the 10 plagues essentially looks upon creation and might have us going back to the story of creation itself. That we might draw something from it.
not only in some literary way, but also in a moral way, which is, in many respects, what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this evening, how God turns something upside down to turn it right side up. (laughs) In this case, taking the bondage of the Israelites to the Egyptians, and by virtue of the very thing the Egyptians worshipped, freeing the Israelites. Okay? My dear friends, the judgment of the Egyptians is given a significant amount of space in the book of Exodus, up to six chapters, right? If we are sensitive to God's ways of doing things, then we must acknowledge that this judgment is important for us, important for you and I. Not only does Moses go into a great deal of detail in describing the plagues of the Exodus, it is an incident that is frequently referred to throughout the Old Testament and the New. Thus, we must come to the plagues as a rather unpleasant subject, yes, but one that is vitally important to each and every one of us. Now, as we look back into the Old Testament up to this point, what do we find? Well, in response to the suffering of the Israelites, God has called Moses, whom he has divinely protected and prepared for the task of delivering his people from Egypt. And after considerable resistance, Moses has returned to Egypt where he has been received by the elders and the people of Israel, rebuffed by Pharaoh, to the consternation of the Israelites, of course, only then to bring us into chapter 7, which again is the beginning of the plagues. And so it is, we have the resistance, the hardened heart of Pharaoh, and the resulting plagues that come to us as really no surprise, either to Moses or to the reader. God has foretold the necessity of the plagues, right, which were to be brought upon Egypt. Recall what we read back in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let them go. We also just read something similar to that in chapter 7, right? Let us consider the actual plagues. In the first plague, we have the Nile turned into blood. Now, my friends, the Nile is virtually the lifeblood of Egypt, right? Without the silt provided during its times of overflow and the, and the water with which it constantly sustained life, Egypt would be almost uninhabitable. Now, the meaning of this miracle of turning the Nile to blood might be best understood in the light of a later prophecy given through the prophet Ezekiel. This is what we read in Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 2 to 6. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak to him and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You great monster lying among your streams. You say, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. I will put you out from among your streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you in the desert, you and all the fish of your streams, You will fall on the open field and not be gathered or picked up. 
and will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. Then all who live in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Now, something that might help us here interpret this passage in this first plague is some historical context again. You see, happy, H-A-P-I, was the Egyptian god of the inundation of the Nile. So in the first plague, we begin to see a pattern that emerges throughout all the plagues. That Again, God takes the false gods and turns them upside down, and even we could say inside out. And this is, again, what so much of these ten plagues are about, so as to, of course, free the, the Israelites. At the end of the first plague, we read in verse 24, what? Let's turn to verse 24 now. And all the Egyptians dug round about the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So here you have the Egyptians digging for drinking water inland along the Nile, where its waters filtered through the soil of the riverbanks. What is going on here? At least for me, when I was reading this text, I was made to think of the prodigal son. There was the prodigal son eating the scraps from what <laughs> the pig would eat, right? And he what came to his senses. Here you have this image of the Egyptians digging voraciously for water. They had hit a point of poverty, but remember, this is only the first plague. If you think they have hit rock bottom here, no way, not yet, not here. And this is what really struck me because as I pictured this narrative, and in particular this verse of the Egyptians scraping for water, I couldn't get out of my head the prodigal son. Herein lies an important point. What is rock bottom for one is not rock bottom for another. And so as we reflect into this, as we muse over this point spiritually, we have to challenge ourselves. If we find ourselves scraping for something that just isn't there, or we have been brought to a place of profound poverty, maybe God is at that point opening a door for us to return to him. Huh? All right. Plague two, the frogs. Frogs were also regarded as having divine power, right? In the Egyptian pantheon, the goddess Haket had the form of a woman with a frog's head. As the myth goes from her nostrils, it was believed at least, right, came the breath of life that animated the bodies of those created by her husband, the great god Kum, from the dust of the earth. Uh, therefore, frogs were not to be killed. They were seen as something sacred. Now, historically, frogs were not uncommon in Egypt, especially around the Nile River, as you might imagine. But there had never been so many. The account of the frogs, quite frankly, my friends, is almost humorous. I mean, one can can visualize them hopping and croaking around all over Egypt. The fact that the magicians of Egypt could produce even more frogs must have been a real delight to the Egyptians, or not so much. Uh, what they wanted was no frogs, not more frogs, right? But only Moses could take the frogs away. Moses gave Pharaoh the option of naming the time for the frogs to be removed. 
And what does Pharaoh do? But he chooses the next day. One might imagine he did not ask for the frogs to be removed immediately, hoping that they would go away by themselves, right, before the appointed time. And if they did, that would show that Moses was not in control of the situation. And be rest assured, my friends, the bottom line here is about being in control, or at least the perception of it. So Egypt was rid of the frogs through their death, which meant that huge heaps of frogs were piled all over the country, as the verses speak to it, creating a stench that was probably a plague in and of itself. Now, something else here that's worth noting The frog goddess Heket was supposed to control the frog population by doing what? But protecting the crocodiles that ate them. So in not doing so, of course, Heket failed the Egyptians. And my friends, take note of what transpires in this plague. Let us go to chapter 8, verses 8 to 12. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to entreat for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, as I've already spoke to it, of course, tomorrow. (laughs) Moses responds, Be it as you say, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord your God. The frogs shall depart from you when your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. Listen closely to verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. He cried out. I spent a whole series on Seeds of Truth Radio talking about the importance of the prayer of mediation, which, of course, Moses highlights in the Old Testament that our mediation is a participation in the one mediation of Jesus Christ, as Paul speaks to it in 1 Timothy 2.5. But as it is a participation in the one mediation of Jesus Christ, that participation is a crying out. What we read, for example, in James chapter 5, verse 16, that the fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effects. The fervent prayer of a righteous person is the prayer that cries out, that sighs and groans like our Lord sighed and groaned in the Gospels when he prayed. The prayer that sighs and groans as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8. When Moses leaves the house of Pharaoh, And he looks up to the heavens and he cries out. He offers for us a beautiful illustration of what the prayer of intercession looks like. It is in the Greek, the diomai of man, the deep crying out of man. All right, how about plague three, the gnats? (laughs) Now, it is not altogether certain what is meant by the Hebrew term gnat. Some have suggested that it was a plague of mosquitoes. All of us have suffered from mosquitoes, maybe not gnats or, for that matter, lice, but certainly we can all kind of get a sense of what's going on here. One might look around and see everyone scratching themselves and continue to think that something is wrong. Now, maybe we could argue that the importance of this plague is not so much the scratching, 
but that the magicians of Egypt were unable to, to produce these gnats, right? Even though they tried. Uh, this was convincing enough for the magicians because for the first time, what do you have but them saying, this is the finger of God. Isn't that interesting? That these illusionists begin to say, this is the finger of God. Uh, This acknowledgement, my friends, marks a decisive turning point in the story. You see, the magicians finally confess that Yahweh's power exceeds their own occult powers to duplicate the plagues and to keep pace with uh, his intensifying judgments, if you will. Of course, the finger of God is revealed in the third sign because the finger of God is the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Many Christian thinkers and And church fathers highlight this. Something to think about. We have a decisive turning point. Now the magicians themselves are saying, hmm, this is outside of us. We cannot produce gnats. All right, which brings us to our fourth plague, the flies. With this plague, we have the second sequence of three plagues being commenced. Here, Discrimination is made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. You see, while we cannot be certain of the exact species of the flies that plagued Egypt, we would probably be safe in assuming that they were bigger and maybe a bit harder than the gnats previously set loose on the Egyptians, possibly even flies that sting, right? That would separate them. Uh, What we do know is that the flies were so bothersome that Pharaoh was willing to negotiate with Moses. Right? In, in chapter 8, verse 25, he offered to let the Israelites have time off to worship their God, but only, only if they were to stay in the land of Egypt. And of course, when Moses refused this offer, Pharaoh countered with an offer that they could go into the desert, but not very far. Moses leaves, but he does so with the warning that there must be no more deceit on Pharaoh's part regarding his promise to let Israel go. But when the flies were gone, you and I both know, so was Pharaoh's motivation to let Israel go. Which is what leads to the fifth plague, the livestock being killed. And that, my friends, is where we will pick up in our time together next week. And, and that is just fine because this more or less brings us to the halfway point of the plagues. And that will give us enough time to really get into that tenth plague of the killing of the firstborn son, which is so important. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.